This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman, the state of California, heading for a fiscal cliff. That's the warning from a new report that says we are in big trouble once the federal COVID relief cash runs out in just a few years' time. And it comes as the governor boasts of a big budget surplus. So will the state go bust? And what are leaders doing wrong? We'll go in depth. It's emerging that Edison Electrical Equipment may have sparked the destructive wildfire in Laguna Niguel. We'll find out more on that. And Russia issues threats as Finland and Sweden move towards joining NATO. We look at the latest fallout from the war in Ukraine. Hollywood home to the movies, but another big movie theater is closing. How many will end up disappearing forever around here? Kevin McCarthy subpoenaed by the January 6th committee in Congress. will get reaction from Washington. And we'll talk with the Caltech professor who helps capture the first ever image of the Milky Way's black hole. We start, though, with that warning of a financial crash off of a cliff for California. Joining us is Bill Glaskell, Senior Director of Public Finance at the Volcker Alliance, a nonprofit founded by former Federal Reserve Board Chair Paul Volcker. Thanks for joining us, Bill. So, uh, so later on the show, we're going to be talking about the big black hole at the center of the universe. But what about the big black <laughs> hole that apparently awaits California in terms of money? Well, I don't think it's necessarily all that all, all that apocalyptic, but it's it's very important. Uh, California got $27 billion last year as part of the American Rescue Plan. There's a fiscal recovery fund that doled the money out. Congress doled the money out. Uh, $27 billion is bigger than the bigger than the state's rainy day fund. It's it's less than the than the surplus, which is about $68 billion. But the real question is, is how that money is going to be spent, uh, what it's going to be spent on, and is the state going to be looking at programs that don't have visible means of support once that money runs out no later than the end of 2026. And that was the warning with some of this when it got started, I remember, saying put this into something that you can build right now. Don't put this into programs or expansions that you're not sure are going to be there later, but I'm getting the sense that people didn't listen. Well, it, it's, it, I, I, you know, people listen partly, um, but there's, there's, there's some big questions. Now, we may see some changes in the governor's revised budget that's coming out tomorrow, but looking at the research we've done and looking at the governor's proposed budget that came out earlier this year, uh, out of that $27 billion, about $11 billion of it goes to replace lost state revenue. Um, California did lose did lose revenue at the start of the pandemic. It certainly gained it back, uh, gangbusters. But so number one, we don't know what we don't know exactly what that lost state revenue component is. Eleven billion dollars uh, is almost half that money. It's a it's a large sum. Uh, question number two. Question number two is we don't know what California is going to do about its nineteen billion dollar debt for the state unemployment trust fund. It owes that to Washington gets money from Washington, it borrows money from Washington. It paid off about a billion of it, but that's that that money is accruing interest. It's a it's uh, about as big as the state rainy day fund. So that's uh, that's a big question. There's and there are some ongoing programs financed by the uh, by the, the, the fiscal recovery fund that may or may not uh, be able to continue after the uh, after the pandemic and the federal aid period has left. There's workforce development. There's emergency aid for community college students. Um, some relief for uh, water and energy utility bills. Uh, there's a, a 
Yeah, the list, but the list clearly go, yeah. goes on and on. But, yeah, but let, let me, it surely does. But, but let me ask you this, Bill, because you mentioned the Rainy Day Fund. And when Jerry Brown was governor, he was very big, as I'm sure you know, on maintaining that Rainy Day Fund because, in his view, at some point that Rainy Day is going to come. Do you think those lessons perhaps have been lost on the current governor? No, I, I, th- I think that, that California got religion. Uh, the voters the voters passed a measure uh, to fortify the rainy day fund, to codify how money goes in and out. So it's it's got a lot of rules around it. Uh, I, I, I think that the, the the plans for this are are, are pretty responsible. There's uh, there's almost five billion dollars uh, earmarked for affordable housing and homelessness. That's uh, that that's a good thing. So we're saying though that out of that twenty seven billion dollars, there there's a lot of questions and. Uh, uh, what's going to happen when that money is spent? You know, the legislative analyst, uh, Gabe Pettick, is warning that no matter what happens with California revenue, that the state is facing a potential shortfall as soon as 2024. Bill Glasgow, Senior Director, Public Finance, the Volcker Alliance. There is still no definitive cause of that wildfire in the Orange County community of Laguna Niguel that damaged or destroyed 20 homes. But SoCal Edison could be the culprit. It says there was so-called circuit activity involving its equipment in the area when the fire broke out. With us now is Mark Tony, Executive Director of the Utility Reform Network. Thanks for being with us, Mark. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, phrase from uh, Edison, circuit activity. Uh, what does that mean to you? Well, what that means to me is that Edison noticed that there was uh, either a short circuit or something that interrupted the circuit, maybe like a tree falling into the lines or, or something like that. The Edison is required to report any anomalies like this to the California Public Utilities Commission when it happens at the same time and same location as a fire, which is the situation we have right now. And it could end up being the same kind of situation we've seen time and time again over the last uh, few years because the utilities, like you said, they have to report, so they always say something like that. There's been some activity, there's been a false, we had an alarm, and then there was a giant fire, and then we start connecting dots. I think one of the big concerns that a lot of people have is we had the Thomas and Woolsey fires in 2017 that Edison has spent billions of dollars of ratepayer money. And here we are in 2022. And it looks like we still have ignitions of fires due to utility equipment. Of course, the California Public Utilities Commission needs to conduct the investigation. We don't know that for a fact right now, but um, there's certainly a high probability that that will be the case when this is all well and done. And the big question I think everybody wants to know is how much is it going to cost for my monthly utility bill? How much more will I have to pay? And that really concerns people in this day and age with the prices going out of control for everything. So in general terms, uh, Mark, what are utilities doing wrong and what should they be doing better? Uh, The utilities, they're doing some stuff better, I, I, I have to say, but it doesn't seem like it's enough 
and that it, it's fast enough. These, I mean, one good thing that's happening is that Edison is gonna be uh, promoting covered conductors. They're gonna be insulating their wires, the electrical wires, so that if they do come into contact with a tree branch, they won't automatically spark a fire or send out a shower of sparks. Yeah, but wait a minute, but, but it's 2022. Shouldn't they have done that in like, I don't know, 1900? Well, the uh, electrical wires have always been built as bare wires. That's how it's been done in this country. And it was the cheaper way to do it. And unless the wires have been replaced with cover, you know, you know, you know, with the plastic coating that we see the wires in our homes, you know, they all got a plastic coating. The electrical wires at the very top are all bare. Now the telephone wires and the broadband wires that are lower, you can see the covering on them, but the majority of electrical wires are still bare. That's why there's such a fire risk. Some of this has to do with with speed, though, or lack thereof, right? I mean, wasn't PG&E like years behind on the, what should be a simple thing, which is get the trees away from the power lines? Yeah, the the, the uh, utility companies have very strong rules about uh, vegetation management, tree trimming, and that's going to be part of what the investigation that the uh, CPC conducts is. Did Edison do the proper clearances from this line? You know, you know, you know, was there a tree that fell into the line? What is the connection between this uh, 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 circuit break or, you know, circuit problem and the start of the fire? So a lot of questions still remain. The big issue that people still have is why does it seem like there are so many fires that continue to be started by utility equipment and how much is it going to cost ratepayers? Terms doing everything we can to make sure that shareholders are held responsible when it's when the utilities are neglect, negligent and not the ratepayers. Mark Tony, executive director of the Utility Reform Network. Right now, the war in Ukraine and Russia vowing to take retaliatory steps after Finland announced it's going to move to join NATO, and uh, Sweden's working on something similar. Joining us now is Nigel Rabb, history professor, expert in Russia at Loyola Marymount University. Nigel, thanks for being here. So is this another situation where, um, you know, something is backfiring on Russia? Because if their concern, they said, was was Ukraine joining the alliance, well, here we have two more countries and one of them with a pretty long border with Russia. Yeah, I, I do think it is a little bit of a backfire. It just, at the moment, though, you don't really know how, how the Russians will react because things are not going so well in Ukraine. I mean, I think even yesterday they've they withdrew their troops from Kharkiv, and so they've concentrated on even a more, even smaller part of Ukraine. And so, you know, who knows how they'll react? Because Finland, like you said, has a it's like an eight hundred mile border, so that's a long border. Well, I mean, I guess the thing that that is most concerning is that the world is a bit in a bind right now, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, you know, the U.S. and and Western allies don't want to let the Russians get off unpunished. Uh, on the other hand. The U.S. is is clearly ramping up its contribution to this effort in terms of hardware and money. Now you've got you know, nations like Finland and, and Sweden probably are going to and probably will be accepted at that into NATO. So aren't we going down a road that this escalation can have devastating consequences? If it if it came to a military escalation, absolutely. I mean, but it, at some level, it's just in terms of the West. It's just returning to sort of some Cold War 
agreement. I mean, the new factor obviously is China on the other side, but it's a Cold War agreement. And, and Russia is going to just entrench itself and somehow they're going to have an economy which they just get by on. And I don't know, it's very difficult to, to, to predict what would happen in Finland. I, I can't imagine the Russians doing anything in Finland, even though during World War II, just before World War II, or around that time, they did go to war with the Finns. But I, I don't see I, I don't see Russia crossing that border anytime soon. And Putin at this point must be pretty surprised that NATO and, and the West held together as, as strong as it has so far, because that was his whole thing, right? That, oh, we're, we're going to break these guys pretty fast. They can't all get it together. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think they were very surprised. I think the most the most surprising thing was the speed of the sanctions. They, and, and the speed of the sanctions, and it wasn't just government sanctions. It was like McDonald's, and McDonald's is 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 got highly highly symbolic value down right downtown Moscow that they would pull out too. That was, I think, a big surprise. Yeah. So, what, in your view, is Putin's end game on this? I mean, he he must realize that the strategy. I mean, he can't be that that isolated that he doesn't realize that whatever his initial intent was, it's not going that way. And to your point, places like McDonald's uh, have now pulled out of, of his country. What do you think is, in his mind, the, the end game on this? So had you asked me that question, say, three months ago, I would have just calmly answered something like, you know, he just doesn't want the expansion of NATO. But, but I think it's changed because the invasion of Ukraine is just a colossal error. I mean, it's a major error because it set Russia back economically 30 years. So... It looks like to me, they're, what they're now saying is they basically want the Donbass in southeastern Ukraine and yeah, some, some type of sort of living arrangement with the West while they sell some oil to China, something like that. But the, the Russian standard of living, again, many like Iran, you know, has sanctions, but it survives. Russia will survive. I don't think that's a doubt, but the standard of living will just, it's, it'll almost go back to what you know, comparatively what it was like in the Soviet Union. And, and if you also look at all the censorship in Russia, that has ramped up so much. And so then there's the worry about, you know, how long can you keep, how long can you keep the pressure down? Because at some point, you know, things will explode. So Nigel Rabb, history professor, expert in Russia, Loyola Marymount University. A lot of places that uh, people like to go see movies aren't around anymore. One of them in L.A., the landmark uh, theater complex on Pico, the old West Side Pavilion, closing down at the end of the month. They're uh, not going to renew that lease. And this is just the latest SoCal theater to close. With us now is Mark Melkin, senior editor at Variety and host of the Just for Variety podcast. So, uh, Mark, I mean, uh, the Arclight closed down. Who knows if that's ever going to open again now this theater on, on Pico, which I have to admit I was just at uh, only a few days ago. Why is this happening? Movie theater, you know, going audience um, that, you know, are fans of independent film and art house films. They are an older audience and they're just not feeling comfortable going to these theaters that, you know, specialize in Indian art house fare. So what you have is, you know, theater chains are saying, you know, what makes money? What makes money? Tentpole movies, Marvel movies, action movies, big rom-coms, this independent, you know, movie going audience. They're just not returning to theaters as these theater owners had hoped. 
So give us the the breakdown between between those kind of things. So the Doctor Stranges of the world, the big Marvel movies. Okay, put those in the AMC's, and everyone who's uh, younger maybe will go and see those. But other stuff like if the Downton Abbey movie that's coming out, or the Michelle Yeoh movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. That was the kind of stuff that was playing well at, at places like this. They were playing well, but could they actually sustain the business? You know, there's doing well, and then there's you know paying the rent and paying your employees. And when you're not filling the houses, you just can't sustain that. Um, and, you know, people are hoping that someone comes in, whether, you know, people say, oh, Netflix should buy it. They have all the money. But, you know, we're hearing now, you know, Netflix is doing cutbacks. So who knows, you know, will a big theater chain come in and say, you know what, we want to do this for art house. We want to do this for independent film. But in the end, they're looking at their bottom line. But then, of course, you have uh, places I mentioned before, the Arclight, and, and they weren't specializing in independent films. They were doing the blockbusters. And is that ever coming back? The Arclight right now, everyone is hoping that the Arclight will come back. The Cinerama Dome, everyone's hoping these theaters will come back. But this has just been a, you know, the pandemic has affected the movie theater going audience forever, obviously. People feel a lot more comfortable watching a movie at home when they know they're safe from COVID. Is Landmark going to try and, and maybe get some other lease someplace else? I mean, this probably also wasn't helped with the fact that the West Side Pavilion is is now an office building that's that's mostly empty. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the West Side Pavilion, I pass it almost every day back and forth to my offices of Variety. And it's actually sad when you go by it because I remember when it was the mall. I remember when going to the movie there, you know, it was populated and people were shopping and people were eating. So it's just, it's going to be tough to fill that void. Um, will someone else come in? Will Landmark find another location? It's just really tough right now. That art house independent landscape, it is tough. So do all those films just migrate to television? Is that it? You know, the, you know, will they migrate to, you know, streamers? Will they migrate to television? I think you're going to have a mixture. Now, I think though, you know, when it comes to independent films and art house films, it's really about awards. So you're going to see an award season. I think you're going to see more of these films pop up in some of these bigger theaters and they will be renting out that space. But will there be these theaters that are really dedicated to art house films? It's really tough. You know, Quentin Tarantino predicted that once the pandemic was over, there'd be a resurgence for these small art house theaters. And right now it's just not happening. In terms of big movies that have or will bring the older audience back in, I mean, do we have a lot of Top Gun fans that are now going to go in two weeks for their first movie after a, a long, long time? You know, the, the thing about Top Gun, though, is, you know, they're playing Top Gun. They're playing it really well because they are playing to the nostalgia of it. But they're also playing to the younger audience because they are making this is a big action movie. Um, so if you're not getting the older audience, a film like Top Gun will get a younger audience as well. So you know, as well as I do, and probably more than I do, that there have always been predictions since the advent of, of, I guess, radio and then TV that it was the death of movie theaters. Is it finally happening? I don't think it's the death of movie theaters. You do see there are theaters. There are movies that are bringing audiences um, to the theaters. I just think it's going to take a little more sort of a recipe to find out what exactly that success is. I think, you know, Hollywood knows how to pivot and they will pivot. Um, obviously, we've seen streaming, you know, taking over a huge chunk of the business. But you also have Netflix where they're, you know, they're leasing theaters in New York City. They're buying theaters here in Hollywood. So it's going to be interesting to see where streamers and the big media companies and these 
um, theater owners where they could come together and save the theater going experience. Quick detour, Avatar 2. Is there excitement for that? Because it seems like so long ago that we saw Avatar 1. <laughs> um, I will say I think there really is excitement for it, but I could just look at you know the stories we've done on Avatar 2. People are really excited about it. I think if anything, people are like, okay, what is this going to look like? It's been what? 20 years or so. 20 years. Um, yeah. That said, you know, these blue these blue thingies, do they age? I don't think so. I think they have blue Botox for them. You know, so, I, I think I have the, the answer, by the way, for getting people back into the movie theaters. Instead of selling popcorn, you sell antiviral pills. Get, check up your Paxlovid at the door. You know, uh, you know, instead of, you know, I'm looking right now at my desk at a box of Raisinets. I'm trying to see what that would look like, a box of antiviral pills at the theater. That is a whole other discussion. Probably get the, a uh, different show. Get the jumbo um, pack. But I enjoy my Raisinets, guys. Yeah. All right. Okay. Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety and uh, host just for Variety podcast, a Raisinets guy. The January 6th committee investigating the Capitol riot has issued subpoenas to leader Kevin McCarthy and four other Republican lawmakers. It comes as the panel prepares for public hearings next month. With us from D.C. is CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Scott, thanks for being here. So take us back a few hours now when this came down and the wave that moved through the Capitol, because this kind of thing is, is pretty unprecedented. It is unprecedented. It's also a big escalation and a very provocative move by the House Select January 6th Committee. It's just about four weeks till they begin their public hearings, potentially a few more weeks till they get their final report. And here they are asking five of their colleagues to testify and now subpoenaing those five colleagues who refuse to voluntarily testify. Kevin McCarthy being the highest profile name, the California veteran congressman, the Republican leader, None of these five is going to testify voluntarily. It looks like none of these five is going to honor the subpoena, but the committee is putting out there that they want the interviews. And what happens then if they, as you said, do not honor the subpoena in, in realistic terms? Nothing? That, it, that is the natural question, but there's just no clear answer, and the committee's chairman won't commit to what happens next. They're still saying, we hope they acknowledge the importance of a subpoena and the importance of our work and come to talk to us. But hopes aren't going to get the job done. Um, there have been other witnesses who've defied subpoenas from the House Select January 6th Committee. Mark Meadows, the Trump chief of staff, Steve Bannon, the former Trump campaign advisor. And they've been referred to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. But so far, only Steve Bannon is charged with contempt of Congress and his trial isn't set to begin till the end of July. And does that kind of thing, would that kind of thing happen with a sitting congressperson or does that turn into some kind of ethics committee and that takes months and months and then we've got an election anyways? Yeah, I mean, there's no clear answer to that because we're in uncharted waters here. It's particularly tricky and thorny to issue a subpoena to somebody in your own legislative body, your own colleague, and the courts don't have a whole lot of work product in this either. So there's not a lot of precedent, but no matter what, this is going to take time. If it goes to court, if there are legal challenges, civil or criminal or otherwise, that's going to devour the remaining time the House January 6th committee has left. They have a firm deadline. They've got to be done before Election Day. And there's just no mechanism for them to require this testimony between now and November. So uh, that also then leads to the inevitable question slash observation that if the committee must have realized 
that uh, these Congress uh, people are not going to respond to the subpoena. And they, I'm sure, realize the timetable involved here and the clock is ticking. So probably they never will testify before the committee. Was this all done just for show so that the committee can say, look at the at these Republican Congress people. They were clearly part of some kind of a uh, they were in cahoots with the White House and now they won't even come and talk about it. Was that the idea? If there's three-dimensional chess going on, the committee's not letting in on what their gambit is here. Um, they know that these five members of the U.S. House are not going to come on in and sit down now that there's a subpoena on their desk. Um, a lot of what's happening here is a show. It's a display of what the committee has. The committee didn't just issue a subpoena. It issued a press release explaining what each of these five has that is of interest. And I'll quickly run through it. Kevin McCarthy talked to Donald Trump January 6th. Ohio's Jim Jordan talked to Donald Trump January 6th. Scott Perry of Pennsylvania sent text messages to Mark Meadows. Mo Brooks gave that speech at the White House ellipse saying we ought to take down names. These people have something of interest to the committee, and the committee said what that thing is, the possibility of persuading or changing hearts and minds. Were there any members who were wary about doing this, which is maybe why it took so long to do? Because there's the backlash idea. Republicans take control and then start dragging Democrats in for stuff. Absolutely. That it took so long for them to put this on paper is likely an indication there was some internal disagreement about what do we stand to gain from putting this out there publicly. We're not going to compel testimony, but they're making a statement that Republican members of Congress have important information about an unprecedented, unparalleled moment and attack in American history. And that's not a meaningless thing to say. Can the uh, Justice Department do something independent of a recommendation from the committee if the Justice Department feels that the Congress people are disobeying the subpoena and therefore ought to face some sort of punishment? It appears they'd have to get a formal referral, and that would have to be approved not by the committee, but from the full U.S. House, which has issued referrals multiple times now for the committee, a Democratic-controlled U.S. House. Um, but that's thorny for, for Democrats as well because it does open the door for what you just described, the possibility of retribution or some type of reimbursement if Republicans seize control next year. And Kevin McCarthy is the speaker. Give us a sense, uh, again, of, of where we are in the timeline before they are going to have these public hearings. Yeah, they start June 9th. There'll be eight or nine of them. Some of them will be in prime time. Some of them will be during the day. A member of the committee, a different member of the committee, leading each one with a different focus. There'll be many witnesses, including rioters, including White House or congressional staff, but we don't know the names yet, but it just seems to be preposterous to assume any of these five members of the U.S. House who've been subpoenaed today would sit down in a televised hearing before this committee. Is there an expected or anticipated star witness? No, they haven't shown their cards there yet. We know who they've deposed. They've deposed, among other people, Donald Trump Jr., um, Ivanka Trump, the high-profile defendant, Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, Enrique Tarrio, leader of the Proud Boys, any number of congressional staff. There's a lot of possibilities for a star witness, but it would, you would think it would have to be a witness who appeared voluntarily and probably somebody not interested in fighting with the committee, but in choreographing with the committee. CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Scott, thanks.
Lots of excitement today, a team of scientists revealing the first image of the black hole at the heart of our Milky Way galaxy. And joining us now is one of that Event Horizon Telescope team, Katie Bauman, professor of computing and maths at uh, Cal State, at Caltech rather, in Pasadena. Katie, thanks for being with us. So this is, a, this is a pretty exciting day, and I want you to explain to people who may not really understand or, or kind of fully grasp the science behind it, the significance of this. Yeah, so this is the very first image that we've ever seen of the supermassive black hole in the heart of our own Milky Way galaxy. And it's the second black hole that we've ever imaged. The first one we imaged, uh, we revealed to the world three years ago, and it took us that much time because this black hole was so much harder to image. It took us those three years uh, between then to actually see the black hole in, in the heart of our own galaxy. In a way that we can all digest easily, uh, what are we looking at when we look at the picture and how did you guys actually get that image? Yeah, so a black hole is this region of space space-time where gravity is so strong that light, you know, can't escape it. But what happens is the gas that is spinning around the black hole is actually bent by its immense gravitational pull, and it's bent into this ring shape. And Einstein's theory of, uh, of general relativity has predicted um, that if we knew the mass and the spin of the black hole, that we could know exactly what that sh ring shape was. And if general relativity was to break down, you know, it's most likely to break down in the extreme environment around a black hole. So our, our goal was to image the black holes in order to test these fundamental theories of gravity th that we rely on. Um, and why is it so hard? Well, this black hole, you know, it's, it's a, we have 4 million solar masses, 4 million times the mass of our sun packed within a diameter that's only about actually smaller than Mercury's orbit. And it's 26,000 light years away from us. So it's so small. It appears about the same size to us as if you're in Los Angeles and you're looking at a single grain of sand of salt in New York. So it's the same size as a single grain of salt in New York viewed from Los Angeles. And so taking a picture of something that small actually required an Earth-sized telescope in order to see the image. So do we have any concept, uh, or what are the theories anyway, of what happens if something goes into that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's... Uh, you know, a, a big topic that a lot of uh, scientists are studying on what happens, you know, as the gas is falling in towards the black hole. But what we're really seeing is not the black hole itself. We're actually seeing the imprint of the black hole on the, the surrounding gas. Most galaxies have one of these guys in the middle. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what we think that the most galaxies have this uh, a black hole at, the, at their heart. And, you know, the last black hole that we imaged, M87 star, it's kind of a very special, enormous, billions of solar masses black hole. But the black hole in our own Milky Way galaxy is actually a much more common black hole. So the fact that we saw that the same theory of gravity applied to both of these two black holes is incredibly exciting. That doesn't make ours any less special, though, though does it? It no, is ours. A, yeah, we should be proud ours, of ours. But yeah, but it's yeah. kind of a pedestrian <laughs> one, you know, yeah. But it's ours. It's ours, yeah. I mean, I mean do we know why? why every every uh, solar system every, every galaxy would have a black hole at its center i think this is a, a question that you know astronomers have ha, are are you know studying all the time and there's a question of you know 
how much is it, you know, the chicken and egg problem? Is it the black hole that helps evolve the galaxy or the galaxy that, you know, contributes to the, the black holes at the center? But uh, yeah, a, a, a question that is uh, still active research. Is it ever going to suck everything in or, or do they also create things and it's kind of like a balance? Yeah, you know what? It's this big misconception of like Hollywood that these black holes are these big cosmic vacuum cleaners. And really they, you know, the the um, gas is only very, very slowly falling in towards them. Um, so uh, yeah, don't worry for us. I mean, even if we were speeding at the black hole, <laughs> At the speed of light, it would still take us 26,000 years to get there. Uh, but of course, that's not even happening, not even close. So. <laughs> we'll be fine. <laughs> so, so, do, so does this mean that Einstein really was smart? <laughs> yeah, you, but you know what? It's actually funny. Einstein, you know, this, he had this theory of general relativity and from it dropped out this idea of black holes. But he himself didn't actually believe in black holes. Um, it just seemed like... It, it was so unbelievable. So I think that you know, if Einstein were around today, he'd be he'd be pretty surprised at what we're we're, we're showing and that his theory has held up. That's cool. Katie Bauman, professor of computing and math, Caltech in Pasadena. A fragment of the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs may have been found in North Dakota. Joining us is Robert De Palma, paleontologist, postgraduate researcher, University of Manchester in England. Thanks for being here. So first off, awesome. Second, were you looking for this or did you have this site and you got to thinking maybe there's something here? Because isn't the crater 2,000 miles away? Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And, uh, you know, as with most things that my team and I find, uh, the best things are ones we're never, ever looking for. So this is one of those things. Yeah, but, but you know, I, I've, I've been to North Dakota many times. It's hard to find a good restaurant. Why would you, why would you find a piece of, of the asteroid there? that killed the dinosaurs? Well, it all boils down to the site. So uh, when we were first tipped off about the site back, uh, my gosh, many, many years ago, there was a, a commercial team led by Steve Nicholas and Rob Sula who were acquiring out fossils, selling them, and doing their operation out there. And they let us know about a lot of fish that were at the site. That's unusual for the area because that, that was basically unheard of. And when we uh, basically looked further and, and developed the project, um, it turned out that that deposit, that mass death layer, was put in place within the first couple of hours after the giant impact that took out the dinosaurs uh, back at the end of the Cretaceous. So that layer is very, very, very special. So we go very carefully and systematically excavate that, and that's how we found this fragment. The fragment was found inside of a glass spherule, which was blasted out of the crater. There's thousands at the site. And one of these spherules had a piece of unmelted rock in it that was really, really weird. And we had to look further into what it was made of. And that's what really gave us the red flag. Yeah. And um, how weird and, and what's in there? What'd you find? Well, here's the thing. You know, these blobs of glass are mostly silica. You know, they're blasted out of the crater at the moment of impact. They're called ejective spherules. But this unmelted piece of rock in there... Uh, Let's just put it this way. When you want to know if something is a cosmic body or if it's originating here on Earth, you look for key elements that are not common in Earth's crust. A couple of those are nickel and chromium and things that are not in high abundance in Earth's crust. We found high abundances of chromium, nickel, and other elements in this fragment that just are not common on Earth's uh, surface. The other thing is ratios of different elements to each other are a key fingerprint to tell you what type of meteoritic body it was. And in this case, it matches an asteroid type that is called a carbonaceous chondrite. So we've got a better idea of what that asteroid was. It matches bodies that come from outer space. 
Is there, I mean, there's usually controversy in all kinds of scientific discoveries. Is there controversy on this one? Well, I mean, you know, you're never going to convince everybody. I mean, let's face it, we still have flat earthers out there for Pete's sake after all these decades of research. But, you know, with this particular project, we've got our team and multiple other teams working on it. And we are very, very careful to double, triple, and quadruple check everything that we do. So the data matches up. And when our team's data matches up with other teams, as has been happening since 2019, when our first paper went out, um, it just all stacks up to support the interpretations. And this is an ever-developing story. The more evidence we find, the more dimension we add to that story. Uh, we just presented this at the Goddard Space Center, and we're collaborating with them now. Uh, so you really don't get much better than NASA and the uh, the people who are experts in the KPG extinction, like are on my team. So it's all part of the collaboration. And is NASA like super excited you found this? NASA is so excited. We're at, we instantly developed collaborations and we've got at least two or three projects going on right now that we think are going to really go interesting directions. So take us a little bit on a, on a brief trip back into time, if you will, for those who are not familiar with what has happened or the theory anyway of what happened. Tell us about this particular asteroid and what the consequences were. Well, we're talking about a point in Earth's history where it was warm and we had vibrant life. It was so warm there were no polar ice caps, and it was essentially a, a paradise. Life was teeming back then, including dinosaur life. And on one unsuspecting day, probably in the spring to summertime, uh, 60, 66 million years ago, you had a giant piece of rock from outer space the size of Mount Everest plummet into Earth at about 20 kilometers a second. That's usually the start of a very, very bad day. And it was the last day of the Mesozoic. <laughs> So uh, it immediately caused all sorts of issues. But one of the first issues that we are able to actually measure is that uh, it caused seismic waves to go through the Earth. And when those seismic waves encountered the bodies of water there near the Dakotas, it caused what is known as a seish. It's almost like a tsunami-like wave. And that went up all the river valleys. It inundated those areas. And it was basically this wall of death that came up these river embankments and locked those things in time in this muddy layer. So you've got animals and plants and everything else, including impact ejecta, that kind of chronicles a minute-by-minute record of what happened on that day. And for guys like you, is that pretty special to know that you're digging up something that died within the first like couple hours of the impact rather than millions of years before or months before or something like that? Like, this is the moment. Considering that no other mass death layer of vertebrate carcasses has ever been found that you can link to that day, uh, yes, that is absolutely exciting as hell for us. As paleo nerds, it's exciting as hell. But for other people, it's exciting too because this is not just a paleo nerd story. We're basically, like you said, looking back in time and able to directly measure what happened back then. And because that led to a mass extinction, we're talking about a connection between a global scale hazard and a mass extinction. By better understanding how Earth's biota responded to that global scale hazard back then, we can tell in the fossil record how it responded. That directly helps us understand the current environmental crisis and how Earth's biota right now will respond to global scale hazards. And that's a key to understanding how we can do or what we can do to help the current situation. So it directly applies to today. Well, uh, can this happen again? Asteroid impacts absolutely can happen again. Uh, and, and we know with some regularity they do occur. But it's not just the asteroid impacts we should be worried about. 
It is the broader global-scale hazard. It could be an asteroid impact. It could be uh, human intervention based on what we're doing to the environment. It could be a number of things. If it's a global-scale hazard, that's what we should be worried about. Impacts are under that umbrella. But, yes, we need to learn how to uh, basically deal with those sorts of situations so that we minimize the effect on Earth's biota. And this is one way to understand that. We were saying before you got here that, you know, people tend to think of the dinosaurs all as a, a massive failure because they're not around. Well, they're birds, but uh, that it didn't work because they all died. But but they're not a failure. They're like one of the best success stories around. Yeah, a, a small faction of the dinosaurs are one of the best success stories of all time because they are still around as birds. That's some of the, the longest lived uh, lineages of animals you can think of, aside from like sharks and octopi and things like that. So uh, it, you know, dinosaurs were tremendously successful. So um, it's kind of scary to think that one global scale hazard can take out most of them. So you know, but, but even how, with the successful creatures on Earth, we still got to be careful. But let me ask you: I mean, how long did it take for most of them? They didn't all get wiped out in a matter of hours, right? It took some time. That's the scary part. Okay, so we have what's known as the Big Five mass extinctions on Earth. Those are the the, the biggest global mass extinctions on Earth. Most of those mass extinctions uh, took between, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years to play out. So it's like, you know, it's a long time. The end Cretaceous extinction event took place on human timescales. We're talking about uh, years because within the first year, within the first months of the impact, everything was driven into freezing temperatures on Earth. They had an impact winter that lasted years, perhaps decades. That took out the plants, and within a number of years, the dinosaurs were brought down almost completely, if not completely. So that's what we're talking about, years, a handful of years. And that's the startling thing. That matches very closely the scale, uh, the time scale of the, uh, the current environmental problems. So that's why we've got to actually pay attention to what we're learning from the fossil record. That hindsight is vital to us. Robert De Palma, paleontologist, postgraduate researcher, University of Manchester in England. Thank you.